0: counterpunch radio my name is eric Drazer. thanks so much for tuning in coming back to the show first time listeners finding the show welcome aboard always happy to have you go over to the website get yourself your subscription to counterpunch plus that's how you support counterpunch how you keep the lights on keep the publication going we're hitting 30 years now and um what can you say? Not a lot of publications have that many years under their belt. We plan on being around for many more years into the future as all the fair weather media uh, falls by the wayside. So become a subscriber. Counterpunch Plus is simply the replacement of the magazine. We're not printing it on paper anymore, but we have even more articles, analysis, critical insights from all sorts of perspectives on the left, that's all available to our subscribers. So please do go over to the website and uh, do the thing that we ask every time. And speaking of supporting our favorite uh, media outlets and our favorite publishers and so forth, I have one of those with me today, returning guest, friend of the show, Michael Yates. You all, of course, already know him, but if you don't, he's the editorial director of Monthly Review Press. We all know Monthly Review. We're all perusing the catalogs every season. Uh, he's the author of Why Unions Matter, Can the Working Class Change the World? Other books as well. He's a longtime educator, labor actor, activist and uh, author. And of course, he is the author of the brand new book, Work, 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 Labor, Alienation and Class Struggle, which we will be talking about here this evening. Michael Yates, welcome back to Counterpunch.
1: Well, thanks a lot. I always appreciate Counterpunch. Uh, I I don't remember how long ago it was. I first got uh, wind of Counterpunch and wrote my first essay for it. And uh, it's a great publication. And I've always liked everybody that's associated with it.
0: Thanks so much for that, Michael. And of course, we uh, say exactly the same about Monthly Review. I can't even tell you how many times Monthly Review has educated me in countless ways. But let's talk about the book. Congratulations on the new one, Work, 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 Labor, Alienation, and Class Struggle. Really interesting book. Let's talk about, well, there's a lot of different ways we can go with this. But just talk to us a little bit about the book, about how it came together, why it came together, why it seemed so pressing right now.
1: Well, there's been a lot of discussion in the media about work, about workers quitting their jobs, about the effect of the pandemic on work, about the big increase in unemployment, about workers refusing to go back to work, quitting their jobs and so on. But what struck me, and I've been studying work for about 50 years now, starting out with the work that I did, the work that I saw other people do where I worked, how I helped them organize unions and what have you. Uh, one of the things that's always missing is a discussion of the nature of work in this society to get right down to what's really at the root of the work that we do. And speaking of roots, one of the things that I learned when I was working on this book, which is a set of a couple of new essays, but the rest of them are, are uh, updated and re-edited uh, essays that I have had published in the past. So there's in a way new essays, too. One of the things that i learned is that the root of the word work the anthropological root of it it connotes the notions of compulsion affliction persecution and torment and i started to ask myself why would this be so what is it about work that would lead those words to describe it what are the consequences of this and what might we do about it and so that's the sort of hook that i use to, to to do the book and it's pretty simple my my theoretical perspective if you look at human history for almost all of the time we've been on earth well over 95 percent work was a natural and necessary thing it was what we did it's how we interacted with the natural world to produce things that we needed and the tools and equipment that would help us produce those things but with capitalism you got something completely different you have a system in which our ability to work has become a commodity, something that's bought and sold just like every other commodity. no different from the point of view of our employers than the machinery that we use to produce the things for them. And this is something completely different in human history, that labor, our ability to work itself has, has become a commodity. Now, why is that so? Well, if you look at our economic system, and I have details in the book and don't really have time to go into that here as to how this happened. But what we know is that the things that we need to survive, that we need to combine our ability to work with, are the private property of a tiny minority of persons. And we we know that no matter what kind of data that you look at, the distribution of wealth, uh, the distribution of stocks, the distribution of bonds, the distribution of land, what have you. So that given that we don't own these things, we have only one thing that we do own and that's our ability to work and we have to sell that to those that do own these things so that our labor becomes a commodity, something that we sell, they buy. Now those that own that the few that own these things, they have a, a pretty singular goal in mind. They want to make as much money as they can, profits we could call them, and they want to grow as rapidly as they can. And the history of capitalism shows that to be the case the, that uh, that that drive to make money and to grow. Okay. Now, given that they that they that they want to do these things, how, how do they how are they able to do it? Well, it, it struck me from my own work, from observing others, from study, that in order to do that, they have to extract a surplus from our ability to work, which is another way of saying that they have to exploit us. Now, I, don't, I mean, that exploit is just a fact of life. They, they need to generate a surplus above their costs. Where else are they going to get it except from our labor or the machinery itself and the land itself can't generate a surplus. Only our labor can do that. So they have to exploit us to get that surplus. But if you look at the history of capitalism, you'll see that those of us who do the work, we've rejected the idea. We don't like to think of ourselves as commodities, something bought and sold. And so we've rebelled in a wide variety of ways. We've refused to work. Uh, we've uh, rioted. We've destroyed machinery. We've engaged in strikes and pickets and boycotts and what have you. We're the only active element in production. Now, if we do those things, we we may well disrupt the ability of the those few to get what they want, to to uh, extract a surplus from us and to grow. And so it struck me. That the key to what they do is they have to control us. They have to control our capacity to work. They need to control machinery and all the other means of production. So, that, since we're the only active element, they have to devote a special attention to controlling us. And so, in the book, I sort of describe the history of capitalism as a sequence of what I call control mechanisms. And the book goes into a lot of detail about what those are. And, you know, we can talk about those, but that was sort of, that was sort of the, the way in which I structured the book around that theoretical concept of the desire of the employers to grow, uh, to accumulate capital, if you want to use a technical term for it, the need to exploit us and control us to do so. And I wanted to know, well, what are the consequences of this and what could we do about it?
0: Spoiler alert. Michael is a Marxist, in case you didn't notice any of that that explanation. It's great. I think that's perfect. So let's use that. Let's go with that, Michael, and tell us a little bit about something that you highlight right in the beginning of the book. And I think this is one of the key elements that also is one of the uh, threads running through the book, and that is work as alienation. Can you talk about the concept of alienation, how it relates to work and why it's so important?
1: Well, sure. Uh, The consequence of us being commodities, of workers being commodities, the the consequence of all of the control mechanisms that we're subjected to, what happens to workers is is, is that the employers want our our bodies, and and by bodies I mean including our minds. They, They want those. They consider those to be their property while we're at work. And this generates a tremendous amount of stress. Uh, I did a, 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 an opening for the, for the book. Uh, we, did a, we did a YouTube video and we started off with this song. You may be familiar with it. It's called Under Pressure. And that's what workers are. We're under pressure and that's not good for us. And, and one of the things that happens is, is that we suffer from a profound sense of alienation when we become commodified. And by that alienation, I mean a kind of separation. And you can think of that separation in a number of different ways. We're separated from the things that we make. And that's never been true before. If you look at, say, gathers and hunters that dominated uh, human history for for a lot longer than all the other systems of production combined, and then some, they produced the things that they need. They they had control over their, their production. Their, their labor wasn't divided up like ours is. They didn't suffer from that kind of alienation from the things that they made, but we do. We produce things that may or may not be useful in any normal sense of the word useful, but they don't belong to us. They belong to somebody else. So they're alienated from us. So we're alienated from the things that we make. Ask yourself, Do we know who made the things that we wear, for example? Do I know who made the shirt that I'm wearing? Well, I could probably guess, uh, if, if I know where it's made, I can probably guess the conditions under which it's made. But I don't know the people that made it. And they don't know the things that I made. So that's one kind of alienation, separation from the things that we make. We're separated from those with whom we work even, because in the kind of society in which we live, workers are in competition with one another. Historically, there's always a surplus of labor in the market. There there are never enough jobs, much less good jobs, to go around. So we're in competition with others. Uh, It's like a ladder where where you might find the need to step on the fingers of the people below you and to grasp onto the legs of the people above. We're separated from one another as we work. They might be seen as competitors with us. Uh, Third. We're alienated within ourselves, really. We have our work life and we have other life. You know that old saying before work was 24-7, seven days a week, we'd say, thank God it's Friday. Well, why would we say that? Well, because the weekends we were free, we were more human, and the workplace we're not. So our own psyches are separated. We're alienated within ourselves. And finally, we're alienated, separated from the natural world. Uh, the natural world is commodified just like everything else is, and even if you think about the things that we do as part of non necessary consumption let's say if we travel, if we go on vacations, we use up the land, we think of it as something to be used for our immediate gratification, but we don 't think of it as an entity that needs that that needs that needs to be taken care of along with us. So we're alienated from the things we make, we're alienated from our fellow workers, we're alienated within ourselves, and we're alienated from the natural world. That's not good. It's not a healthy thing. So that's what I'm sort of what I mean by the concept of alienation.
0: Absolutely. And another distinction I thought that was really interesting in the book, and you highlighted, I think, several times, is the difference between work and producing. Right. And you mentioned it kind of already, Michael, when you were pointing out the fact that, you know, the very concept of work, the word itself implies compulsion, right? And so there's a difference between working because you have to and working to produce because you say want to or feel a desire to provide for your community or whatever it might be. So can you talk about that distinction and why it was important for you to make in the book?
1: Well, I, I thought I thought to myself, as human beings, we have to produce. We have, to have any we don't have any choice in the matter. Uh we can't live unless we produce. We can't live unless we produce food, clothing, and shelter, the things that we need as a bare minimum just just to survive. So that, that's what I mean by by producing. That's a, that's a normal and natural thing for us to do. And you could imagine a society as in previous societies where that would be a normal part of life. It would be something you you might uh, conceivably get enjoyment out of. Uh, and even if you didn't get complete enjoyment out of it, at least you knew that you were producing things for yourself and those around you. Uh, I, I once saw a, a, a film of these uh, gatherers and hunters in the Amazon. And the, I, th- I think the the men were going out on, to, on a hunt. And everybody in the community had their arms around one another before they went out in, in, onto the hunt. And I thought to myself, wasn't that a nice thing? Uh, they seemed to be, uh, they seem to be uh, engaging in an act of camaraderie and, and togetherness before they went on the hunt. And interestingly enough, when gathers and hunters go on the hunt, if you're a good hunter, you get nothing special. In fact, gatherers and hunters typically have ways to demean you if you try to act above your station, so to speak. If you, try to th- if you think that you should have more than somebody else, they will say, look at that puny animal you hunted. You're not a good hunter. So they had ways even to control that kind of competition and aggressiveness that we feel in this society. So production is a normal, natural state of affairs. Work, on the other hand, uh, work is in our society that... That's something different. It's not to say that you don't sometimes get enjoyment out of your work. Some people get more enjoyment than others, but in the end, work is alienating. for For a good part of my adult life, I was a teacher in a college in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. It was a campus of the University of Pittsburgh, and for a while, I really liked it because, as jobs go, it was a good one. I mean, everybody in my family were were well my father was a factory worker he worked in a glass factory for 44 years and my uncle was a coal miner and a construction worker and my other uncles were truck drivers and my aunts were secretaries and my mother was a homemaker but she'd once unloaded dynamite in front of a coal mine with her with her uh, mother and her brother because miners had to buy their own dynamite in those days Uh, that's not that's not fun that's what, what how are you supposed to feel good about that And if you look at the world as a whole, I have a lot of examples even from the United States, but if you look at the world as a whole, there's 860 some million farm workers in the world. Now, do you think they're really enjoying their work? Farm workers, I work for the United Farm Workers Union. I have a whole chapter on that in the book. I can assure you that that farm work is not pleasant work. Now, the United Farm Workers Union did a lot for the workers. Unfortunately, it didn't last very long so that at least they could get pretty good pay. Uh, and at least they'd have some benefits, but the work itself is difficult hard it's not uh it's not particular it's not particularly fun it's different than being say a farmer working with a family producing food that might be hard work, but at least you at least you know where the benefits are going they're going to you and your household uh, the farm workers uh, the benefits are going to the growers so there's a difference between production, which is normal and natural, and hopefully someday it'll be again. And work, because work in a capitalist society is not fun. And certainly for, I have a chapter, which I always liked. In fact, it's called Work is Hell. And you know that the the first version of that was published in Counterpunch, long, long time ago. I've rewritten it several times since, and I rewrote it again for this book, but that's where it first appeared. And it's called Work is Hell. And I meant that literally. For most of the people in the world, work is hell. So there's a difference between working and production, put it that way
0: exactly and just to build on that point further you know you you talk and you actually provide some examples in the book from your own experiences jobs you had going back to being a paper boy all the way through as you mentioned being a teacher and I guess what I'm getting at is that a, a lot of this book deals with kind of dispelling myths about work as we mentioned you know already kind of work as something uh that is, I don't know, glorify something to be glorified. Right. And you kind of go at pains throughout this book to say, no, it's not something that we should necessarily glorify. It's hell as you already mentioned. So can you talk about some other examples from the book where you really do try to address this idea of the myth of the workplace?
1: Well, you know, you get the idea like in, in the rich countries that work is becoming cleaner, that it's becoming, uh, you re- that requires a lot more training and education uh workplaces are cleaner even steel mills are cleaner you know i worked in johnstown and steel town my gosh if you're ever in a mill or in a coal mine you know those are those are not clean places those are tough places hot places uh, uh to work so you, you get this myth that that uh, that the, the workplaces themselves are cleaner now that there's that mechanization has eased the burden of of work um, that um, that if you put your nose to the grindstone, even if you have to start out in a lousy job, you'll rise up and you'll get a better job, and pretty soon you'll be uh, you'll be a person in authority, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, everything's tech jobs, or or um, uh, they're, they're, it's all it's all mind work now. Uh, but but I don't think that's true. Uh, for example, in the world, the the Amount of employment in the world is I don't know roughly about three point two or three billion people people that are employed now there are also people that are not employed uh, but the, but the majority of people uh, in the labor force are employed so let's say about three point two billion now about one and a half billion of those uh, now some of those are not paid they're the family member their family members often children. Uh, they don't they don't get money, but they they get something because the family sh- shares the food with them. Obviously, if they're if they're kids, but they're called own account workers, and the uh, International Labor Organization calls it vulnerable employment. Now, own account workers are what we would call independent contractors, but independent contractors can that that can those that that, take, that covers a wide gamut in the rich countries, in the global south where most of these own account workers are. Uh, we're talking about people uh who are uh s- selling things in the streets like say they're they're selling food products on the street or or they're selling uh jewelry that they made or they're selling uh lottery tickets on the street or they're or they're making deliveries by bicycle or they're uber or lyft drivers uh, or they're or they're uh pulling rickshaws or they're uh they're scavenging garbage dumps for anything that they can sell or use or they're scavenging uh Mine wastes, uh, mine waste like uh, like like big t- piles of scrap of uh, uh, big slag heaps of tin in Bolivia. Let's say women would be up on these big tall slag heaps looking for tin that that they could sell. Or we're talking about people uh, who are taking clothes home and sewing sleeves on shirts, or they're doing other kinds of sewing. In India, for example, I read that something was quite incredible to me. They make these cheap cigarettes in india called bidis b-i-d-i and they're made from the leaves i believe of an ebony tree and women work uh in their homes on the floor or they work in sweatshops making these cheap cigarettes uh that are then sold and do you know how many of them there are in india there are five million people doing that mostly women five million million—it was, it's was just unbelievable to me so if you go into any town, like in the United States, like, uh, like I'm in Boulder, Colorado. I lived in lots of different places, Portland, Oregon. And if you walk the streets and you see somebody doing yard work, uh, you can bet that there'll be an independent contractor, typically in the West, a brown-skinned person, this, this person whose native language is either a, a native language in Mexico, uh, an Indian language, or, or Spanish. And you can bet that the people that are doing plumbing, construction, yard work, Lawn care, etc. Uh, they're going to be independent contractors. They're going to be own account workers. They're not necessarily working for somebody. They're selling their services. Uh, they might be working for somebody. And and in the United States, you know, you have a, a tremendous number of people that are engaging in deliveries and and what have you. So they're own account workers in the rich countries as well. But but uh, that, that gives you some idea of now there's well, t- say 200 million child laborers between the ages of about five and 17. And they may be, uh, they, may, they might be making carpets or they might be even 10-year-old kids working in uh, underground mines for gold in, in the Congo, let's say, um, doing work in brick kilns, uh, child sex workers and what have you. Uh, so there are a couple hundred million of them when you look at it that way and and then i use the united states too and and i, I it, we, our labor force our employment number of people employed is about 158 million give or take in in current months and of them well over well over 50% are engaged in various kinds of stressful work uh, I have some examples in the book, postal workers, uh, massive wage theft, restaurant workers, wage theft, burns, drug and alcohol abuse, rampant, uh, cuts from the, from the labor, tremendous stress if you work a line in a, in a restaurant. There are, there are 15 million of those in, people in the United States. Uh, secretaries, clerical workers, healthcare workers, my goodness, look, look what happened to healthcare workers during the pandemic. Uh, clerks, my goodness, people were attacking them, uh, for insisting that they wear masks in, in stores and stuff like that during the pandemic. Um, I have a, I have, I have a, oh, auto workers, 57 seconds every minute they're working. There's still almost a million, uh, workers in the auto industry. So there are lots of jobs of those 158 million employed. Uh, my guess is that well over half gig workers. I haven't even talked about them yet. Those Uber and Lyft drivers, delivery drivers, and what have you that that, that work through on on platforms using apps and smartphones. Uh, I have I have some discussion of that in the book too. So so when I say when I say work is hell, it, it is. In my own job, which was a good one, uh, I started to feel this profound sense of alienation. I had such large classes and so many preparations and. I remember I had a night class and I'd be taking a nap on my couch and I'd wake up about 5.30 for a six o'clock class. And I think if I have to go up these steps to that second floor one more time, I'm going to scream. And that was a good job. So if somebody like me gets alienated and thinks the work is too stressful, then how must other people feel? Mine was a heads and tails above most. So, so those are some, some examples that I, that I have in the book. That's not to say, like in China, you know, workers in that one plant, uh, Foxconn, they had to put uh, they, had to, they had to put nets uh, underneath the windows because roofs, because people were jumping off, committing suicide to work was so stressful. I mean, you can't make this stuff up.
0: Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to uh, take a stab at uh, attacking that old arch enemy of all of us Marxists, and that is the neoclassical economists. So we will attack the economists, the mainstream bourgeois economists after the break in my conversation here with Michael Yates. Again, the book, Work, 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 Labor, Alienation, and Class Struggle. Get yourself a copy while you listen to the music, and we will be right back.
2: and what it really means It's equal rights for every man Regardless of his strength So don't let no one fool you Listen as I tell you No man better than none Socialism is love between man and man Socialism is love for your brother Socialism is Lincoln What Would you believe Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting Socialism is sharing with your sister. Socialism is people pulling together Would you believe me? Love and togetherness, that's what it means Mr. Bigger trembling in his shoes Saying he's got a lot to lose Don't want to hear about sufferer at all One man have too many, while too many have too little. Socialism don't stand for that, don't stand for that at all. Socialism is love for your brothers. Socialism is linking hearts and heads. Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sisters. Socialism is people pulling
0: And we are back chatting with Michael Yates. Again, the book, Work, 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 Labor, Alienation, and Class Struggle. Get it wherever you get your books, preferably not on that one large online retailer that we all know and shall remain nameless. So, Michael Yates, let's talk a little bit about those dastardly mainstream economists. I remember uh, sitting in my 12th grade uh, high school economics class and learning about the profit maximization point and supply and demand curves and all of this other stuff. And this is what economics is, isn't it? So here's the question. And maybe you can go with this in whatever direction you would like. Why is it Michael why is it that so many mainstream economists and mainstream economics in general has just so little to say about work and about labor
1: Yeah there's a cartoon I saw once where this economist is on the couch of a psychiatrist and he starts droning on and on about that sort of thing and the psychiatrist jumps off his jumps out jumped out of his chair and says let me get the hell out of here I can't stand this anymore And when I was uh, when I started to teach uh I was droning on and on about all this stuff, you know. Uh, so as far as labor goes and every other commodity, the mainstream economist builds their model around the concepts of supply and demand. And underneath supply and demand are individual actions, uh, which the economist defines as maximizing actions. Now, part of this whole business of seeing the society is made up of maximizing independent Individuals was partly a reaction to to uh, to to more radical analyses of capitalism, where you start where you looked at society in terms of of groups of people, like uh, the early some of the early classical economists. Well, they thought the landlords were a drag on the society, but they they thought about a class of landlords and then a class of capitalists and a class of workers. I mean, they weren't so stupid as neoclassical economists who abstract away from all of that. And think of society as, as, as nothing but the sum of the individual actions, maximizing actions that take place. And so if you looked at, at work, for example, they don't think about work at all, really. They think about the supply and demand of the workers. So we supply our labor. And the assumption that the neoclassical economist makes is that when we supply our labor, we make a maximizing decision where we're trying to maximize our well-being, our satisfaction, if you want to say, our utility, as economists say. And some of us will have uh, strong leisure preferences, and so we won't work that much. And some of us will have weaker leisure preferences, and we'll be more willing to supply our labor. On the other hand, the employer seeks to maximize profit. And so the employer is gonna hire us based upon how productive we are. If, if we add more to the employer's revenue by our labor than the costs, well then we have to be hired or we have to be paid a higher wage, one of the two. But how do we become more productive? Well, a neoclassical economist says that's really on us. We become more productive by getting more schooling, for example, or by getting more training, for example. Now, it's sort of a circular argument because the way they they discover that is is by pointing out that, well, of course, incomes are tied to education. The more education you have, typically you make more money. So that must mean you're more productive. There's no direct evidence that you're more productive if you have more schooling. I used to tell my students that what makes them productive maybe is they were willing to sit in uncomfortable chairs for four years. That's what made them productive. They send a signal to the employer that they'll put up with anything. So the employer might hire them, but it's not because they're more productive. Most jobs don't require all that much education to begin with. The Same thing with with training. How productive you are hinges upon the the, the materials that you work with. It depends upon the collective actions of all the workers put together. It has nothing to do with our individual maximizing actions. So it seemed to me, as I started to teach, that 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 just couldn't be true. Uh, There had to be a lot more to it. And once, once you get to work, once you get to the workplace, the economist sort of says, well, that workplace is like this black box. We don't have anything to do with that. And I thought, well, how can that be? You know, my my paternal grandfather, even though he left school in the eighth grade, he, he taught himself to be a, a, what we call today an industrial engineer. And he was a time study engineer. And he once time studied his own son, my father, and he was there with us. Now, today they don't need stopwatches. They have many more uh, unobtrusive ways to monitor you and keep track of what you're doing. But he had his stopwatch out there and he timed the workers and timed their motions. And then they'd re-engineer the motions and direct you to do the work more, quote, efficiently. Now, if it was just a matter of everybody maximizing, once the employer hired you, why would he need my grandfather? Why would you need my grandfather to make sure you worked hard? See, once you get in the workplace, there's no guarantee whatever that you'll do work or that you'll work hard or that you'll work up to standard. Uh, you have to be controlled for that to happen. So the most important thing, what goes on inside the workplace, the economist abstracts away from. All he's interested, all the economists, I say he because most of them are men. Now there's more women that are economists. Uh, you sell your labor because you want to maximize your utility, your sense of well-being. You compare the wage against your leisure preferences and you decide whether to work and how many hours to work and so on. The employer, on the other hand, is trying to maximize profit and make a decision to hire you according to if your productivity outweighs your costs, okay? how much you add to the revenue compared to how much you add to the cost. And that's all there is to it. And then the economist says, well, what goes on inside the workplace? That's for the, the psychologists and the sociologists. They can examine that. We don't have anything to do with that. And that just seemed like nonsense to me. And, you know, I taught workers for about 35 years. I started teaching workers directly in Johnstown, Pennsylvania in 1980. And I quit about 2015. I had a class at the Labor Studies Program at the University of Massachusetts where I worked for a, long, for a good many years. About once a year, I do class there. And um, every time I taught workers, if I taught them this neoclassical theory, this business about productivity and hiring according to productivity and leisure preferences and so on, they'd all start to laugh. It sounds, it, it sounded, I was i was embarrassed to teach it because it, when you do it in, with a group of people that are actually out there working, they know it's so ridiculous that they can't imagine that anybody would believe it. Unfortunately, that's what's, that's what's taught, uh, And and you can see how what the economists are teaching, and not only that, but it gets worse because they say that if everybody maximizes successfully, the society will be as well off as possible. You can't get a better society than that. (laughs) Uh, No one can gain unless somebody else loses. Okay, So it's like an optimum position. Well, if you look at the world around us, that just sounds preposterous on its face. So they create this imaginary world and then act as if the real world is like that. And anything that would be good in the imaginary world, they assume is good in the real world. And so in every case, they've been proven to be wrong. For example, they say, if you raise the minimum wage, that's going to increase the cost for hiring the worker. And unless the workers become more productive, you're going to have to lay them off. So uh, increasing the minimum wage, other things equal. The famous phrase of The economist means that they have that there's going to be unemployment uh, there's going to be cuts in employment and there's not going to be as many people hired new people hired studies show that that's not true that raising the minimum wage has no no effect or sometimes a positive effect on employment so every in every case that you look at the world you see that the Predictions that the neoclassical economists make are, are not true; they don't hold, and that means that leads most economists to sort of conclude that well, they don't really have to test their theories; it's self-evident. You make the assumptions and you generate the conclusions, and isn't that self-evident? You don't really have to test. So, you know, there's a Nobel Award in the in the science of economics, but economics is no more no no more a science than uh, astrology, and so. You know, it's a complicated business to neoclassical economics. Gosh, I had to study so many hours to learn it. I had to teach myself all sorts of mathematics and so on to figure it out. But in the end, it's it's all sort of vacuous and useless. They even found out that students who take economics classes are more selfish than students who haven't. They're as likely to help their their uh, uh, other people around them. The economists themselves are no, notoriously selfish people. Ones I met anyway, not all of them, but but a good many of them. Uh, and and it's, you can see how the capitalists would applaud them and, and why they get money and why, why they get paid to do what they do. Uh, it can be a lucrative occupation. If you're an economist like me, it's a it's a, not a very lucrative <laughs> proposition at all, as far as that sort of thing goes. But at least you're honest.
0: Indeed, and and the thing is, one of one of the reasons why they are lauded by capitalists, why they have, you know, endowed chairs at you know the prestigious universities, and why they're on I don't know, the Epstein Express with people like Jeffrey Epstein or whatever, is because they peddle a lot of very useful myths. Quite frankly, and actually, you highlight one of those myths in the book that I wanted to see if I could get you to spend a couple minutes talking about this. I mean. I guess you could call it an incorrect assumption, you know, a faulty assumption or whatever. But I mean, it really is a myth. And that is the the idea of profit as a cost of production. You know, the idea that somehow profit is this naturally occurring, uh, uh, you know, thing that just it must be accounted for. It's not purely a product of exploitation. Can you talk about this idea of profit as a cost of production and why it's this, this myth just is peddled over and over again? I mean, I guess, uh, I guess I'm not really asking why it's evident why, but can you just talk about this as, well, a, as the myth?
1: Well, yeah, sure. Uh, I can try to make it as, as, as simple, uh, as simple as I can. Uh, profit is like a reward to the risk taking of the capitalist or the fact that the capitalist was sacrificed by saving in the past and deserves the profit that are made. And I used to give my students an example. I said, at the time that I was teaching then, uh, Bill Gates was the richest person in the world and he had about $100 billion. And I asked my students, I said, suppose that Mr. Gates has 100, suppose he had $100 billion of wealth and on that wealth, he made a 5% rate of return. That's $5 billion a year. Now, I said, suppose that Mr. Gates went into a coma. What would happen? Wouldn't he still still get that $5 billion every year? And the students would all say, yeah. And I'd say, but what was his productivity? Wasn't it zero? Uh, what risk was he taking? Isn't the answer none? Uh, he's not saving anymore, so he's not getting any return to that. And besides that, he's in a coma. So... <laughs> I mean, you could see right away there that profit is not a cost, it's a surplus. It's something that has to be extracted from others. But, of course, uh, th- then you could sort of ask, uh, well, uh, how about the beginning of the of the system? Um, w- what's going on there? And some economists would say that, well, uh, humans were just waiting for capitalism to arise so that this profit could be made. Uh, You point out that, well, the land was stolen, Uh, as Marx has in his famous uh, section on the original accumulation of capital at the end of Capital Volume 1. He says capitalism comes into the world dripping in blood. And boy, that's the truth. Slavery, what have you. So the idea that profits are is is absurd on its face, and that's sort of a, a pretty good example, I think, as to a, 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 to, to 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 dispute that. Uh, heck, a lot of the a lot of the earliest inventions were made by 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 uh, by craft workers it had nothing to do with capitalist ingenuity, risk taking. What's the what's the risk there? What what risk is it? You know, when uh, George Bush Senior. Uh, got out of the military. His father gave him a million dollars back in back in about 1946, and he went to Texas and um, uh, you know became a Texan. Well, what risk was he taking? He got a million dollars from his father. There's no risk, no risk taking. That was he particularly clever. Uh, was he saving his money? Well, he had a lot of money. It wasn't wasn't hard to put some aside. And this is all not to not to mention the fact that if you look at people like Bill Gates or or that that criminal uh, Elon Musk, uh, they booked the government out of billions of dollars. Oftentimes inventions are made through public investments, not by individuals. So if if you look at the history of the whole thing, uh, it, it's just ridiculous. Uh, I, I one time uh, gave a a talk at my where I went to college at the small Catholic college in St. Vincent College in Trobe, Pennsylvania, and the head of the economics department where I was speaking was one of he was an arch neoclassical one of those one of those diehard libertarians and he was telling me how what a great guy Bill Gates was because because look at look at all of uh, look at all all of his philanthropy and I said well. (laughs) That's like saying that we owe all those libraries to Carnegie. We could have had the libraries otherwise. If we'd taxed Carnegie or Gates at a reasonable amount or a confiscatory amount, really, is what it should be, then we could have used the money and had any number of libraries, probably a lot more libraries, probably a lot more inventions. So, you know, Bill Gates didn't invent anything special uh, as far as the computer is concerned. He 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 just gained a monopoly of things. So, this idea that profit is a is a is a cost implies that it's deserved. And that's a powerful argument that they that that's made over and over and over again. And so, what happens? A lot of people believe that, now, don't they? They think that these people must be special because they have a lot of money. Uh, we're all taught and trained to look up to them, to think that they deserve what they have. And they didn't deserve any of it, not really. Uh, at least, at least not not if you look at the reality of things. Behind every fortune, is a great fortune. There's a great crime. I who. A writer said that I don't remember who now, but uh, it, that's the truth of the matter. If you look at the history, and of course, economists, you know they don't teach his, his, they don't teach economic history anymore in graduate schools. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. If you look at the history of capitalism, it, it's an ugly, ugly history. One of one of taking, not earning.
0: Uh, when you said it, you also sent a chill down my spine because I was also blanking on who said, uh, behind every great fortune, there's a, is that Balzac?
1: I think maybe it was. It might have been. It was one of those. It was a French novelist that said that. I think I'm not or sure. Zola. I'll I'll, I'll I look I, that up. I wish I could. <laughs> well, I, I, I will ask off, another oh, question. I said it off the top of my head,
0: so I <laughs> I I'm going to ask know. another question. Mute, and I will definitely Google it, so we will have an answer after this next question. So, Michael, in the in the time that we have remaining, I want to. Well, again, I want to commend you on the book because I I really think that um some of the anecdotes and and, and uh, concrete sort of stories that you find throughout, sort of sprinkled throughout this book, illustrating larger points really do, I think, crystallize some of the key issues that we need to be thinking about in the context of work in the 21st century. And maybe there is no greater issue affecting and maybe transforming the very nature of the work that hundreds of millions, billions of people do around the world. No issue affecting it greater than climate change. So I want to give you a a moment to talk a little bit about climate change and just environmental issues generally and specifically how they relate to work, the kind of work being done all over the world every minute of every day and why it's important to think about how these things are changing work now and in the future.
1: Yeah. Okay. Let me just preface that by saying that in the book, there's a lot of discussion about what needs to be done. And of course, what has to be done is the control that capital has, has to be confronted directly. And I have a lot of examples in the book of how that might be done, but you mentioned environmental. Well, well, first off, a lot of the work that we do is environmentally destructive. Uh, we, we, just, we just know that from the kind of work that's done. Uh, if you think about, for example, uh, all the military spending they have and all military production, well, that's incredible. Besides destroying human life, uh, that's one kind of environmental destruction right off the bat, since we're part of the environment. But military spending is incredibly destructive of the environment agriculture is incredibly destructive to the environment. And there are ten, hundreds of millions of people that are engaged in agricultural work. So you can see right away the two things that would have to change is there has to be like a, as much of an abolition of the military as possible. And agriculture has has to be revolutionized. That is, we have to product, produce things on a much smaller scale, much more locally where possible and in an environmentally sound way. As many peasants in the world, or a couple billion peasants, by the way, uh, not direct wage laborers and they know how to produce things in an ecologically sound way and that has to be that has to be encouraged so first off much of the work that we do is environmentally destructive to begin with of course in extractive industries and in mining and wasting water and so on so so right off the bat work has to be changed in terms of the kind of things that we produce okay so but second I just saw an interesting article and I've been thinking about this too. Uh that uh, that that great e- ecological thinker Andreas Malm has some discussion of this. And um it's about global warming. As as temperatures rise, the question arises how are people going to work at all? Because it's so hot that you're not going to be able to do work. I, I was just reading about a year or so ago about laborers in Phoenix that's in the United States, of course, and the temperature is going 110, 115 degrees. It's very difficult to work under such circumstances. So global global warming and environmental destruction not only done not only not only harmed by the work that we do, but in addition, once the temperatures rise, they make the kind of work that we do even less viable to do. So it's it's like a real contradiction, which I don't see as soluble within the system. But in the article it was in the New York Times just yesterday, I think, or the day before. And they were using an example of um, of the town of Basra in Iraq. Basra used to be called the uh, the Venice of the Middle East, I think, uh, because it was a place where there were all these canals and reeds and tr- palm trees and uh, and flowers and so on. And that started, as that started to be destroyed uh, as a result of the commodification of, of nature, uh, the place got, got more and more desolate and hotter. And now, uh, in the daytime, it's not uncommon for the feel-like temperature to be over 125 degrees. So that if you're going to get any work done at all, you have to start working at 2 or 3 in the morning, and then you have to be off work by, by, um, by 8, 9 o'clock. Uh, They compared that to uh, Kuwait City, which is only 80 miles away. It's a much richer city for Kuwaitis. And there, uh, people live in the indoors all the time, uh, keeping their houses cool with air conditioning. Well, of course, that's environmentally destructive too. And of course, who does the dirty work are immigrant migrant workers uh, coming from other countries. They do the dirty work in the heat. So not only is the work we do environmentally destructive, but... The environmental destruction then works back in a feedback loop, sort of, uh, as temperatures rise to make work less and less viable or possible to do. And this would seem to be a conundrum, uh, which is so destructive that that it, it just has to be changed or we're just not going to survive. So work is an environmental issue and working people have to be aware of that and they have to start making demands that they don't do certain kinds of work or that work be reorganized in a more radical way so that it's not so environmentally destructive and working people have to get behind uh, environmental movements to uh, to do the best we can to ameliorate the effects of uh, of of global warming and then of course if you think about who who's hurt the most from this environmental destruction what's going to happen in the future is there's going to be tens of millions there already are uh, environmental refugees uh, there are people that can't live anymore, like in Bangladesh. I mean, the country's going to be underwater pretty soon. It's already subjected to big floods and so on. So they're going to have to move to other places. People are going to have to move up to more temperate zones or or, or, or colder climates. So there's going to be all kinds of refugees. Now, as there are more and more refugees, you can imagine. Look at what's happening in the United States with with respect to to, to immigration. It's going to lead to a lot of hatred, a lot more, a lot more persecution, a lot more warfare. It, it's, a, it's a working class issue for sure because the people that are worse affected by it are working people. Look, where, uh, look, who, look who, who, who's harm, harmed the most by, uh, by, by power plants, by waste disposal, etc. It's always people that live in the poorest places. It's always the people of color, to, to a large extent, in, in the United States and in, in many other countries besides. And the people in the global South who've contributed the least to global warming are going to suffer the most. So I, I don't know. It seems to me that that the radical, the more radical your position is, the more realistic it is. It's utopian to imagine that we can keep on going the way we're going, and somehow there'll be a Deus ex machina. You know these. Um, these carbon removal machine, machinery, that none, none of that's going to work. Technology is not going to get us out of this. There's no fix for it. Uh, the more radical your position, uh, this is something I think probably Counterpunch, I'm sure Jeffrey would agree with this. The more radical your position, the more the more realistic it is, really. Uh, the more you think you, we can keep on going the way we're going and that somehow we'll work our way out of this, that's utopian now. That's utopian for sure. Probably always was, but it's even more so now. So that's a good point. It's it's sort of a good way to, you know, come towards the, uh, you know, the end of our discussion here to talk about the environment as a as a work issue, because it really and truly is. And it took me a long time to figure that out, too. You know, Uh, it was some of the people at Monthly Review, like the editor, John Foster and so on. They helped educate me about a lot of this stuff. And I really do appreciate it.
0: Yeah, I would I would. I would uh, second that uh, Foster, among others, is, is certainly important for me as well as, of course, Jeff, Jeff Sinclair and others associated with Counterpunch. Oh, yeah, well, Counterpunch. Sure. The, well actually, um, the
1: Counterpunch people, are, Jeffrey, he, Jeffrey's really good. I learn a lot from him just in his uh, weekly summaries that he does every Friday.
0: Yeah, and I've been, I've been, I've right. been reading. <laughs> I
1: always I've been, make sure I read those, you know, because there's always something about the environment in there, uh, besides oh, yeah. police brutality and so on and so forth
0: yeah and any time and any anytime jeff can uh uh pretend that a, a wolf is eating a a hunter we all love it here at can <laughs> um but anyway yes in in closing, I just want to ask you um I know this is also a big question that it doesn't necessarily uh, lend itself to an easy answer in a couple of minutes. But what are some of the things that we need to be thinking about as workers now in context of all the things that you just mentioned? I mean, climate change is so big. It's bigger than our workshop. It's bigger than our workplace. It's bigger than our union. It's bigger than our industry or it's bigger than our country for that matter, wherever we might be. So how do we as workers begin to think about some of these issues and affecting change? Is it just to be done within our unions if we're lucky enough to be in a union? Is it something that is a matter of simply educating people? What are some of the ways that you would suggest people take this information and apply it to hopefully building towards that positive change that you were talking about?
1: Well, I think it's a multi, multi-pronged multi strategy. And I, I I always like to think that whatever organization it is, whether it be a, a union, a political party, a worker center, uh, an environmental group, uh, whatever it is, uh, first of all, the, the, every entity has to have a set of principles. And I think this principle should be built upon an ideology or a way of thinking in terms of rights and equality. And once you do that then a lot of other things follow. If you're talking about equality, then issues of patriarchy and racism and environmental destruction, imperialism, they they come right to right front and center once you have that set of principles that's focused on rights and equality. Second, I think whatever entity it is, there has to be a strong education component. And it has to be a kind of radical education. Like if it's labor education, you can't just talk about like, how to resolve grievances or what have you. You have to talk about the nature of the economic system. You have to talk about the society's culture, about its politics, about its history. Working people have to know these things. I always thought that working people would like to know these things a lot, but they never have the opportunity to do so. And then within any kind of organizations, we have to work out strategies that attack, that attack employer control. And of course, employer control is embedded in a whole system of control. If you think about it, schools are mechanisms of control. The law is a mechanism of control. The police are mechanisms of control. The government itself is a mechanism of control. So, our, this, the, the economic and the work system fits into a larger system, which hinges upon control. So, it all has to be attacked in whatever ways that we can attack them. So, in our in our labor unions, we can we can we we can start by say. You have to have a right to strike. You you have to have limited management rights clauses. You have to have workers participating in the in the work. You have to have you have to have special people like shop stewards and, and representatives who who know about these control mechanisms, who know something about the society. Every union has to have a, a, a an education component. Broadly speaking, there has to be inter inter union and intra union solidarity. There have to be more worker centers where 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 workers in a particular entity can can meet and discuss all kinds of things, including the environment and and larger larger issues. Uh, I think we need a lot more direct action, if I might say. The landless workers' movement in Brazil's uh, uh, their their rallying cry is called Occupy, Resist, Produce. Occupy places where production can occur. Uh, there are plenty of those in the united states uh any any entity that has any funds like there are some unions that are loaded with cash you know why unions have unions have uh have uh, have started banks hospitals housing developments et etc there's no reason why they can't do those those kinds of uh, of things uh there there's no reason why we can't why we should applaud those Sikh farmers in india who who to uh who, who, who revolted outside of Delhi for an entire year to to get rid of some really hostile laws that the Modi government had uh, had wanted to enact that would, would would limit their ability to farm as they wanted to farm? That's the kind of direct action where you know you you, you take over spaces. Uh, we're going to have to we're going to have to find ways to 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 get a hold of land so that food can be produced because that's really critical i think to produce food in an ecologically sound way so that people can be fed good food i think that's really important and you could say the same for housing and what have you uh legally we have to you know i'm not big on voting for democrats and so on as a way to change things uh, i sometimes voting is important but you need more radical more radical politics you need more direct action. Those communes in Venezuela for example, where they start to engage in production directly, I think are important. you have a couple of those things like cooperation Jackson and Jackson Mississippi in the United States uh, there, there, are, there are lots of possibilities of of, of creating new kinds of organizations, radicalizing existing organizations and engaging in various kinds of direct actions. I think those are, I have a lot of examples in the book, you know, I have time to discuss them in a short space of time, but I have a lot of examples in, of the book of concretely what some of those things might be. And time is short. Let's be honest. The, the The environmental crisis means that time is really short. And unless we engage in radical actions of one kind and another, uh, humanity is is in a is going to be in a bad way. Uh, I'm old and I won't be here to see that, but my children and grandchildren and so on and so forth down the line are going to be in a bad way unless we make some radical changes.
0: Absolutely correct. I couldn't agree more. I think about that all the time every time I look at my kids and remember that they will probably be alive in the year 2100. And this will be a very different place at that point. So uh, with all of that said, Michael Yates, uh, the the book, Work, 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 Labor, Alienation, and Class Struggle, absolutely got to get yourself a copy of that. The holidays are upon us. It's a great, great opportunity to give an important book as a gift. Uh, He is the editorial director of Monthly Review Press. Uh, The book, again, is a real must read. Michael, thank you so much for coming to Counterpunch and chatting with us.
1: Oh, thanks. 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 And uh, I, uh, I, pr- I appreciate your interview. It was really good. Excellent. Thanks a lot for it.
0: Thank you, Michael. And listeners, thank you, as always, for all of the support. Um, happy holidays, and we will talk to you again next time.